Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to spend some time this winter talking to farmers and seeing what unique things are going on around the state. So our first victim is Aaron Overholzer. We're here in Dart County talking with him. He's graciously agreed to join us and share a little bit of what he does on his farm. So welcome, Aaron. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. Why don't you give us a little overview about your farm? Sure. So uh, like you said, my name is Aaron Overholzer, and uh, I farm with my parents uh, and my wife uh, between Bradford and Versailles. So we're like uh, just east of Greenville in Dark County, Ohio. That's where our home home farm is, but uh, farm kind of straight east and west of Greenville, basically. So um, about 1,500 acres, grain farm, uh, corn and soybeans, uh, no wheat anymore, and no livestock. So. Yeah, so you guys have a pretty unique history here. Could you dive in a little bit to yeah. the history of your yeah, farm? Yeah, so my uh, the home farm uh, there where we operate was bought originally by my uh, great-grandma and grandpa um, on my mom's side and uh, would have been bought, I think, in 1947. And they had farmed in um, Springfield, Ohio, which is about an hour south uh, by modern travel, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, the first year... Uh, that they had purchased the farm where we live. Uh, they had been renting in Springfield, renting a farm and operating a small grain farm livestock operation as, you know, it would have been more diversified back then. And uh, that first year, they actually uh, farmed there in Springfield and then drove their uh, equipment up and planted the farm that they had just purchased. So the first year, they actually farmed both. And uh, my grandpa tells the story about uh, his senior year in high school, driving the tractor and uh, you know, pulling like multiple wagons and having oh to gosh. get everything moved in time to to get both planting and harvest done on both. But yeah, yeah so that was that was kind of <laughs> neat. But, so then they yeah, so then after the first year, then they were done in Springfield, is my understanding, and and uh, yeah, just concentrated up here. And uh, you know, they moved up here basically because they found a farm that they could afford. You know, yeah. kind of hilly and a good place for cattle. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, but so it's been good. So. Yeah. That would be even a trek today. Yeah. Yeah. With the road speeds we can drive. <laughs> right. I and I think imagine. they might have even planted with their horses or mule or whatever. I think that first year. Wow. I don't know if, you know, how many tractors they had or whatever at the time. But, wow. uh, but yeah, so it's been kind of fun. And then, you know, the, the home farm, my great grandpa was a real hard worker. And so, like, he just kind of grew it. You know, that was back in a time when uh, if you were willing to work hard, you could just grow your farm. You know, it wasn't a maybe as capital intense as it is now. And there was more opportunities just for literally, like if you sweat, you can buy it, you know? And so uh, he was able to, to grow his base operation there and uh, had all kinds of livestock, you know, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, and then my grandpa, uh, which he would have been an only son, um, but had two sisters. Uh, he took over, my great grandpa actually died young. He was only, uh, I think he was, 56, 58, somewhere in there. And he actually got a uh, cut uh, working in, they had a chicken barn, like a laying, two laying barns, um, egg egg barns. And he got a cut and was allergic to um, penicillin oh, and no. died like a week later. So oh my, my grandpa, you know, he comes, he had a young family at the time and he was only, I don't know, 30 basically and had to take over this farming operation. You know? So with the help of his sister uh, and of course his mom, my great grandma, they 
they were able to keep doing it. But And then your grandpa was an early adopter of no-till. Yeah, yeah. So my grandpa continued, you know, with the livestock and everything that his dad had done. And I don't know, I think, like, I remember hogs being on the farm uh, until I was... I remember looking out the window and watching the feed mixer go by, you know, but yeah. I really was, I mean, I was five, six years old. And that you're kind of age, in the millennial generation. Yeah, right? so I'm, I think I'm 31. I was born in 88, <laughs> yeah, something like that. So I don't Just keep track of that as good as I used to. Yeah. yeah, so my dad had hogs, uh, you know, he was part of the hog operation back then, but they got out, you know, about the time a lot of farms got out of having their own hogs on the farm, you know, and they went to contract barns, they didn't make that step but uh, previous to the hogs they'd had dairy cows and the the egg the leg laying barns and uh you know just all kinds of stuff they had, mm-hmm. you know their their hogs were fair to finish but um but yeah so my grandpa uh you know when he was done with the manure and uh was kind of looking to do something different uh he did adopt uh, no-till pretty early on i mean i like i was telling you earlier i've never plowed a field so, <laughs> uh, yeah, but other than just for fun, we made a couple of rounds to see what it was like, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, our farm is, is kind of in a little bit of a hilly location, some of it. And, you know, we have some fields you wouldn't dare till it would be all in the Creek in just a matter of a few rains. So, you know, they used to do it, but, uh, now we know better. So, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about some of the other equipment and technology that you think has, has made a difference in your operation over the yeah. years? Yeah. So early on, uh, my grandpa, like I say, was an early adopter of no-till farming. Um, he also kind of subscribed, you might say, to a, a program that Ray Rawson had put together. He's a farmer out of Michigan that was kind of an early innovator in no-till, you might say strip-till. But uh, So he had uh, he had developed a tool an inline ripper, and Ray Ross was kind of the first one of the first ones to do that. Um, and they, he called it the Zone Builder, which he later sold to Unterfirth, okay. uh, the, the patent or the technology on that, whatever. But And that was kind of good that Grandpa found that because as he came away from all the years of plowing and hard pan and you know potentially livestock grazing, whatever, that was a tool that we could use uh, to eliminate compaction, uh, but yet it didn't disturb the surface is kind of the principle mm-hmm. behind it. So you pull it you know, 12 inches deep or a little deeper if you can, whatever, and it kind of busts up like subsurface compaction and, but doesn't disturb the surface. So that's one thing my grandpa got onto pretty early on, you know, pulling it back with an old white four wheel drive tractor that (laughs) doesn't have as much horsepower as our front wheel assist do today. But, um, and then also with the Ray Rawson program, uh, they had a fertilize tool that went on your planter that was, uh, kind of like a, Instead of a no-till colder like we have today, it kind of did a little bit of strip-till on the toolbar. Um, and it had two-by-two uh, two fertilize with an option for two-by-two-by-two, two two, which is uh, something that's just come around like recently, right? But yeah. um, my grandpa didn't have the two-by-two-by-two by two by two one, but it was an option that you could put it on back then. But Yeah, and about what year? Oh, this you... would have been, I don't even know. I mean, I was little, yeah. I mean, like mid-90s probably. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy how early some of these technologies yeah. come on and don't yeah. catch on at first. Right, yeah. You know they're, they're yeah. the next big thing. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff is, later. you know, stuff we're yeah. just talking about. But Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, when you're looking at, you go to the farm show and you look around, there's all kinds of technology that, uh, you know, like three-fourths of it probably isn't really going to work. 
or you know it, it, like you try it's like well it doesn't fit our farm or whatever but my grandpa had he had some good insight like to kind of see you know what would fit our hilly clay farm and and but also work on our fields that are better you know and so yeah so you know that's some of our early technology i can talk more about yeah, what you guys have gotten into, yeah. what you've been involved with. Yeah, so when my, my dad took over the farm around 2000, I believe it was, he had farmed with my grandpa up till then, but grandpa was ready to retire. And so um, that very first combine that my dad bought, you know, without grandpa's input, uh, I think we used it one season. And then I came home from school one day and they're working on it. And I was like, you know, what's going on here? And they're putting a yield monitor on it. Of course, I'm like, you know, what's a yield monitor? So you got a couple <laughs> sensors, and it tells you what the yield is. So uh, that first year was was kind of fun just to watch it. Basically, we just had a number up on the screen. And uh, I think the very next year, then, we started mapping uh, mapping that data. We had a, an old uh, black and white display. Uh, this would have been like an aftermarket monitor in a John Deere combine. But, uh, yeah, so like a black and white display. And told you the numbers while you're driving, but... You know, if, if I was in there or dad was in there and you didn't get to see the numbers, so it, it would record the data and we could print maps. And and uh, so that, that's that been kind of fun. So we have yield data all the way back since, like, I think about 2002. Very um, cool. Yeah. So you guys have been doing no-till for a while. Um, and something that's kind of helped you probably with compaction, especially as we have this crazy weather is the um, use of controlled traffic. Yeah. Gotten into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, back with the no-till thing, and before auto steer, we went, we weren't really doing controlled traffic, I would say, I mean, we kind of did, but, you know, however good can you really do it by hand? Right. Um, but I think in around 2008, probably, um, we had purchased a, you know, a newer John Deere tractor that was auto steer ready and uh, put, uh, you know the auto steer unit in it and had it to where we could put it in the combine as well and so that's kind of when we started the control traffic thing also that we got to that point where our equipment kind of started to line up with uh, implement widths and that's something that we've tried to stick with um, so yeah so we've been able to do the control traffic um, we had had an, an older auto steer unit like just for spraying that was just was. Uh, but when we put it in, uh, actually to get serious about this control traffic thing and, and uh, you know, trying to do a good job recording data, it was pretty obvious to us that it had to be RTK, RTK or nothing, because uh, if the data is going to line up, it has to not move. So if you're not familiar with RTK, that means uh, there's a base station that makes a correction on the GPS coordinates so that when I pull into the field year after year, it's the same spot. Mm -hmm. And so our local deer dealer actually didn't have... Uh, RTK capabilities at the time so we went with an aftermarket solution uh, for a few years uh, and then when they got on board then we made the switch back to all the deer equipment which has been nice to keep it all integrated but uh, but yeah so we've been RTK since around 2008 I think so so what are the widths that you're operating on yeah so we kind of had to make a decision you know yeah. so we've stayed with 30 foot increments um, you know as I look at farms uh, there's a lot of like eight row farms, you know, so 20 mm -hmm. foot and they've got a 40 foot planter. Uh, we kind of just stuck with the 30 um, and it works good for us, 30 foot bean head, 30 foot planters, uh, spraying in increments of 30 feet. Um, and also, you know, so we had, a, we, we purchased another planter for this year and kind of had to, you know, sit there and think, you know, we want to do 30 foot, 40 foot. And 
we decided just to stick with 30 and my thought is that it fits our operation size well now uh, if it was to be significantly larger someday or whatever um, I think I would just jump to 60 rather than yeah. you know because there's kind of like it's 30 foot or 40 foot mm-hmm. uh, and 40 foot's just kind of an, an odd you know 40 80 120 but uh, based, so yeah so we're sticking with 30 60 90 so yeah. Have you noticed any benefits yet so far? Uh, I've done some tests. Uh, so with a six row corn head, I could shell with a, with a 30 foot planter. I can shell like that is like the perfect test of harvesting your uh, tractor tire uh, swath, so to speak. Because mm-hmm. like with duels, you're basically like six rows are uh, somewhat kind of pinch rows. Uh, so I would shell, I've done this on multiple fields, but I'll shell like right where the tractor drove. And then six rows where the wings were. So in other words, it's never been ran over. And uh, the biggest difference I found was like eight bushel, and uh, which is pretty significant, yeah, yeah. you know. So when you think about your implement widths, that's another reason to go bigger. So you have like more wing width. But also to me, it's uh, you know it's a proof that like controlled traffic works. So you know some of those spots. Well, like in corn, it would be ran over when we planted, when we side dressed. Uh, every other pass or every third pass, maybe when you spray kind of thing. Uh, and then of course harvesting, but, um, but yeah, I think, and that, that depends on the year, you know, how wet the spring is. And, um, but I've seen, it's always been a measurable amount. You know, you can pick up a couple bushel pretty much anytime you, you check it. So yeah, that's one thing that's been important. But. So you mentioned doing tests and that's something that you guys have really gotten into is research all across the farm. Yeah. We've had Sam on here a couple times talking about some of that research yeah. that you do with him in the extension office. So um, what's really inspired you? What's your goals there? Um, yeah. So for us, uh, I like to say that uh, we harvest two things from every acre course a bushel hopefully a profit <laughs> uh, but also some knowledge right yeah. so we're not out there just to get the bushels but we're out there to learn something to you know so we're not making stupid mistakes again next year and uh, yeah so that's you know way back I mean even before we had the computer in the tractor and we were recording what we planted or what we were doing at the time uh, we were sticking flags out and uh, my dad still does some, you know, he's like, well, what if we lose this data? We won't know what's out here. It's like, well, we, I think we can trust this stuff nowadays. But, uh, you know, so we're all the time. We're putting flags out and marking. So way back, we were marking varieties. So even when we weren't doing so much stuff with Ohio State, we're just kind of starting out like um, we would just be splitting the planter. So one, one half with one variety, one half with another variety. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we've kind of done along that line is uh, we'll pick one variety that's worked well for our farm like the previous year. And maybe that'll be on like, say, half our acres. And then the other half is something new that we're trying. So, and then we'll just kind of divide that out. Of course, within reason, you know, we might pick one that's, you know, some matchup maturities or whatever. But if I do get a field where I have like the same variety across the whole planter, then I'm just like, I'm always trying something. So I'll go back and I'll, I'll make a down pressure change or, you know, just something and, and, you know, make a note, you know, we're making notes back then. Now I type it in the computer, what I'm doing, um, but yeah, so everything from varieties to uh, different fertilizer rates and populations, and uh, and then now with what we've done with work with Ohio State uh, over the last few years, they've been working on like rewriting the tri-state fertilizer guide and uh, recommendations for that. So um, we've done a lot of stuff with that, and 
Um, I guess I could talk about, uh, I was thinking about a couple things that, you know, sometimes when you do research, you realize uh, that, you know, maybe you need to change something. Other times you realize that what you're doing is justified or right. Um, so like uh, with Sam, we've done uh, corn population for multiple years and soybean population for multiple years. And the corn population has been one that uh, we've kind of found that, you know, maybe we're doing it right. You know, the kind of that sweet spot, 32, 33, 34,000 uh, seems to work pretty well. Of course, it depends a little bit on the hybrid in the field, but um, so we've just kind of stuck, you know, that's what we were doing and we've stuck with it. But uh, soybean population, um, you know, the first year we did that with Sam, we had a, I don't know, a 60 or 80,000 population strip. And Sam's like, well, it has to be at least 500 feet long. <laughs> and dad's like, well, do we really have to do 500 feet? That won't work, you know. And, uh, so that's been kind of interesting to see because it actually does work pretty well. Um, so, you know, seeing soybean populations drop. And, uh, and but also within reason, you know, somewhat it has to be by variety and by field, by conditions. So like, you know, 2019, uh, we're planting in way too wet conditions in June. And it's like, we're not dropping these populations. Yeah. You know, we're upping them. We planted populations like we planted 10 years ago because we got to get these things canopied. We got to capture sunlight. Um, so you can't just go by, you know, you got to take other things into, into account, but yeah. Yeah, but that's all part of the experience, right? You, know? right. you gain that experience yeah. and can make those decisions, right? But at least you have that in your pocket for the right. really good years. So, does, you know, as a farmer, do you really know what sixty thousand population soybeans look like? Yeah. And in two thousand eighteen, they looked really good. <laughs> they were thick, and we planted a field, a mile long field, all the way across, you know, and and they yielded. They were our best return on investment, you know. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, in 2019, I think some farmers got to find out what, what it they looked, looked like, like unintentionally. <laughs> yes, yeah. It was definitely a yeah. challenging year. <laughs> oh, yes. One that we're glad is over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the other things we wanted to talk to you about was, you know, the, the philosophy that your family takes on, the, on transitioning the farm over to the next generation. Yeah. So I don't know. You know. There's a lot of talk about that kind of thing in the industry right now, and lots of meetings are held, and I think a lot of it has to do with the age of the average age of the farmer, you know, it's like a major concern in the industry, but I don't know, you know, I don't know what the right answer is. Probably every operation's different. Um, but one thing my dad has always uh, used as a motto or been adamant about, however you want to say it, is that uh, your kids need to do the fun jobs. And yeah. then, you know, they need to get to do the things that are fun. So, you know, the first year my dad was running our operation, he's like, you know, get in the combine. And I'm like 12, <laughs> 13 years old and I'm flying around in the combine like it was great you know and and uh and so it made it fun for me uh and i see a lot of farms where i think they make that mistake that uh you know they don't let their kids do anything but the grunt work mm -hmm. and of course they're not interested in it and uh i think that's the key is you know they got to be interested in it if they want to learn about it you know they're like well my kids don't really know enough about it and it's like well you probably didn't teach them or give them the opportunity to want to learn it you know so uh, like for me, I was playing basketball in sixth grade and, uh, I'm not necessarily good at basketball. I was just tall. And so they had me on like a traveling team or whatever. And, and, uh, we had gotten some chicken manure spread and we were incorporating that. And, uh, I'm out there. I'm just all excited cause it's time to work the ground, you know, and cause we're no till I don't get to do that much. Right. So, uh, I'm out in the tractor and mom comes out one night and she's like, 
you know, you got to go to basketball practice. You need to come in. I'm like, uh, I'm not getting out of the tractor. I got to finish this field. And she's like, no, you have to go to practice. I was like, well, I quit. So, she's like, well, you have to go tonight because you have to tell your coach if you quit. So I went and I told him. And, uh, yeah, that was the end of basketball. So yeah. I wasn't going to the NBA, and I knew I was going to be a farmer. So. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good point, you know, that I think it's a balance, or you got to give them the hard jobs so they learn right. good work ethic, right. but give them yeah. a little taste. Yeah, of they can't just do too. everything fun, but I mean, if they're getting to drive the combine when they're 12 years old, or, yeah. you know, getting to plant some corn, you know, a lot of dads kind of hold on to that job, and, you know, let them, let them take a turn at it, you know, yeah. planting yeah. corn's not that hard. So. And we mentioned, um not quite as light of a topic but if something does happen to someone on the farm and yeah. they've they've been the only one who's done that job right. then that makes it really hard to pick up and carry on right so yeah everyone should know how to do everything really yeah yeah it's great well we really appreciate your time i think you provided a lot of good insight and fun interview here so good thanks for having me yeah good luck with 2020 all right thanks we might need it Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.